Thanks, Alexandra. I don't know whether it's good to be on this side of the room or not, but uh, you'll find out, I guess. <laughs> I'll, I'll start with a psalm, uh, which, will, which is a prayer. And I'll, yeah, I'll start there. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So our God's creation is good and human beings are endowed by God and, uh, and we've been created to be creative and at their best, uh, so are human communities. Uh, another uh, reading this morning from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. It may be possible for each to think too much about his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often and too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken." It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Lewis in Weight of Glory. Uh, these are good words to remember when we talk about human communities. Uh, we will be thinking and uh, looking at some data and statistics this morning, but do not forget the individuals that are, with all their variety, that are behind these statistics. Uh, I'll just pass it. It'll be show and tell a little bit, and I'll pass a few things out while we're uh, talking, and I'll do that now. Uh, some photos of uh, Toronto that I took in a book on uh, Toronto in the time period. Uh, Murdoch, uh, you know, maybe we'll touch on Murdoch some. Uh, Murdoch uh, starts, uh, I think, in around 1895, and I'll be uh, looking at the period from about 1880 to 1890, which uh, uh, Murdoch is set in. Okay. Uh, uh, and here is a, a portrait of Toronto in uh, 1893, a, sort of a bird's eye portrait. That's, you know, fairly accurate, but it's obviously an artist's uh, 
conception. So Toronto, the city of churches, as it was known as. Uh, this morning, I will suggest that the Victorian Toronto was the result of a centuries-old development within Western Christianity that resulted in enormous amounts of social capital accumulating in the city that lies along the northern shore of Lake Ontario. Uh, by social capital, I mean uh, the dense networks that uh, tie individuals and groups together. Uh, in reciprocal relationships that are mutually beneficial and produce norms of trustworthiness. Well, what does that mean? Uh, uh, it's a Robert uh, Bowling alone uh, Putnam's uh, idea. Uh, but, for example, one can go to the bank and be confident around here that one's funds will be there. I, I haven't uh, I've been turned away uh except if the balance is a little low or negative uh, in, in the past uh, in Canada. Uh, one can borrow a tool for the garden from a neighbor. Uh, community centers exist for the common good, and uh, we've enjoyed them along the way. One can go on uh, Craigslist. Alexandra was talking about uh, putting her fireplace screen up yesterday and... Uh, and lo and behold, she looks at the person who responded, and it was George Edgerton. Uh, and so she's got that in her, uh, she's got that in her uh, trunk this morning here at church. But that's kind of social capital. Or one can take a more extreme example: uh, suicide rates. Uh, suicide rates vary across time and culture, and depend upon the density of relationships that individuals are embedded in, as do murder rates that we will look at in a few minutes. And obviously there are individual situations in each uh, occasion for these uh, tragedies, but um, these rates are culturally produced overall, uh, even though they're all individual occurrences, uh, and uh, they are, are fairly predict predictable, they're cultural products. Uh, we know that uh, you know perhaps 350 there'll be 350 homicides in Canada this year, which is actually a very low rate, uh, possibly 3,500 uh, deaths through uh, vehicle uh, uh, accidents. Um, Victorian Toronto, Murdoch's Toronto was of course not absolutely unique, but why look at Toronto? Um, the historian David Bebbington, uh, historian of evangelicalism uh, from Britain, uh, he's English, he's lived in Scotland for a long time, uh, designates Victorian Toronto as the premier 19th century evangelical city. Uh, evangelical at its, quote, most potent, uh, quote, unquote. Uh, how did this evangelical city come about? And... Uh, I will go all the way back to the early earliest developments in the church. Uh, I don't want to uh, only go back to the great revival, say, in Britain. Uh, there's a lot going on prior to that. Um, and we'll, so we'll take a very quick tour here. Uh, and we'll go into the... That's uh, some Roman ruins, of course, there. Um, uh, Larry... Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's uh, it's my. Uh, uh, what the heck did that used to before it got wrecked up? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It was a some kind of statue. That's, that's a, a that's a head. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's my PowerPoint skills aren't the greatest when I'm grabbing these uh, pictures, uh, but uh, uh, we'll take a big picture view of the development of a broad Western liberalism and uh, an Oxford histor- uh, uh, professor of government, um, Larry Seedentop, has given us such a, a big picture, and he lo- locates these developments uh, in the evolution, the development of Western liberalism in general within the developments in the evolution of the Western church. In the Roman world uh, here, the place of the lords and the paterfamilias as keeper of the gods was upset. Uh, and uh, there, there was a move towards the greater equality of the soul in the eyes of God. The care of souls was emphasized in the developing church. There was an increasing regard for the worth of the individual. Christians of all classes, even slaves, came together in the basilica. The place of women was slowly changing. And... Uh, uh, I've got something slightly out of order here, but I won't worry about it. The the development of the church influenced the development of government in the West and put limits on power. A new, quote, social order based on individual morality and self-discipline rather than on brute force and mere deference, uh, unquote. Standards introduced by canon law uh, were more humane. Even voluntary associations go back to monastic orders. Christianity changed the ground of human identity, as our friend uh, James Houston has uh, emphasized many times. Uh, Kyle Harper, uh, the author of this book here, uh, an historian of the Roman Empire, uh, classicist at the University of Oklahoma, has written a major work on, quote, the jarring gospel of Christian sexuality, unquote. In the Roman world, uh, the sex trade was blatant. It was everywhere. It wasn't on the margins. Uh, Slaves were routinely sexually exploited. But the new Christian ethic was, according to Harper, a, quote, coordinated assault on the extramarital sexual economy that marks one of the most consequential revolutions in the history of sex. Uh, this is what the uh, early church brought about. Monogamy be- became extremely important. Uh, and this is uh, Paul, Paul Vane, uh, an archaeologist of the ancient world. Um, not, a, not I think he's an atheist. Uh, um, tells the story from a different angle. I will quote the scholar Gary Anderson, who says, Paul Vane asks his readers to imagine themselves in an airplane flying over the ruins of a large Roman city. And uh, here's a Roman city, perhaps not in ruins, but uh, uh, one that I found. Uh, The public buildings erected by means of charitable bequests include the public theater, the baths, and various basilicas devoted to governmental functions. So enormous are they visible that the observer might conclude that they cover more ground than allotted to domestic housing. 
If, on the other hand, we flew over a great medieval city, and here we have London circa 1300, uh, the picture changes uh, quite a bit. Uh, instead of theaters and baths, one sees the roofs of convents, hospices, orphanages, and soup kitchens for the poor. Charitable activity left an enormous invisible footprint on the design of the evolving Christian city, quote, unquote. And we see that in Toronto. This is social capital. Uh, going ahead to the 18th century, the early evangelicals did not seem to take much notice of a social evil such as slavery. But among the earliest abolition, there, abolitionists, there was little coordination or even awareness of other abolitionists. But deep under the surface, the recurrence of reform. Evangelical networks were forming as a result of the communal nature of evangelicalism as it developed and the emphasis on the individual being created in the image of God. Anti-slavery uh, marked British evangelicalism, and this evangelical engine of reform continued to evolve into Bible societies, missionary organizations, prison work, orphanages, the importance of women's rights, factory reform, and temperance campaigns. Uh, Methodism, as the fastest-growing religious tradition in the transatlantic world, played an important role. Methodist discipline was employed in avoiding luxury items such as sugar and rum in order to subvert the economics of the slave trade. By urging a sugar boycott, it mobilized Methodist women, who were, of course, the custodians of kitchen supplies. Uh, evangelicalism was able to ride the tales of vast changes in organizing and communication. The voluntary society, the newspaper, print in general, there were enlarged spheres of action for women. Global missions brought back awareness of slavery. A fusion of, of evangelical humanitarian zeal and enlightenment notions of natural rights produced a powerful popular mobilization of men and women against slavery. Newspapers, coffee houses, debating societies, libraries, and cultural activity. Uh, Methodism did not set out to be politically involved, but it is a good thing that it did. And uh, Bruce, Bruce Heinmarsh and Marsh, Mark Knoll will be uh, having a course on Methodism, uh, this, um, uh, the Wesleys anyway, uh, this, this summer. Uh, while some Unitarians and freethinkers espoused the abolitionist cause, evangelicals provided the horsepower. And here the Christian doctrine of monogenesis that saw all of humankind as one was all important. Human beings were all created in the image of God. In abolitionism, this doctrine moved into the public arena, and you can see where I'm going with this uh, to Toronto. Uh, evangelicals increasingly held sway within British culture, both within the metropole, that is London, and on the periphery in places such as Toronto. Uh, so um, we can go to the beginning of Toronto in 1791 when John Graves Simcoe was appointed Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada. Uh, he had undergone, he was a British general in the uh, Revolutionary War, the American Revolutionary War, and uh, 
had somewhere around 1790 had gone through a religious conversion and served briefly with Wilberforce in uh, in Parliament uh, in Westminster. But in uh, 1791, he was appointed Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, and uh, in, ni- in 1793, selected York as uh, its capital, uh, later Toronto, of course. Uh, and in 1793, he forced through the Act Against Slavery uh, against the the council there, uh, six of the 16 were um, slaveholders at that time. And uh, by 1810, slavery had disappeared in Upper Canada. And this was a, an enormous good that uh, saved Canada from tre- tremendous heartache. Uh, we will move on here to, uh, and this was Seedentop's book. Uh, and uh, that's the Dutch translation of it. Uh, I believe it's, I, I don't, I don't read uh, Dutch, but, uh, uh, That's Italian. is that right? Okay. There's the Italian, uh, translation. Good work. <laughs> so moving on to Toronto, the good, uh, in the 1880s, Mayor William Howland, uh, evangelical Anglican, set up a morality squad and is remembered by historians today for being a vice squad, but it had a much broader agenda that included the protection of women and children. And so the tag of Toronto the Good uh, was originally connected with this vice squad, uh, or, or morality squad anyway, and so it was originally an epithet, uh, a, a term of contempt but it has broadened since, although most wouldn't know its origin today. Uh, it's sort of become, ah, Toronto the good. It, it's, it's only thought of as positive. Uh, I like to refer this to a scandal of goodness, uh, a scandal in, mu- in that much of the historical guild would re- view the place as oppressive and hyper-moralistic, at least in the 19th century. Uh, so the city, uh, Murdoch's city, if you want, uh, in 1881, had a population of 86,000, and by 1901, it was 156,000. So it was rap- rapidly urbanizing and industrializing. Over 90% of the city had roots in the British Isles. There were, were of course, economic ups and downs. Life could be very precarious for women with large fat families. They were very dependent on male breadwinners on average, although women certainly... Uh, uh, worked as well. Uh, there was heavy migration to the city of young folk, uh, as you see at times on Murdoch. Um, Toronto was also known early on as the city of churches. Uh, and it it is blessed with rich statistics with respect to religion. That's why uh, that's part of the reason I, I was attracted to studying Toronto. Religion was included in the Canada census, whereas in Britain, by and, it, and they, religion was included in the Canadian census until 1951, whereas in Britain it was discontinued in 1851, and in the U.S. it was never included because of the separation of church and state. And so I was able to... Uh, Calculated things like literacy rates uh, according to denomination. And uh, I was also able to work with the central prison register. I have a picture of it uh, 
circulating there, and the register included denominational data. So it's a historian's gold mine, and uh, uh, at the moment I'm working on Prisoner Heights by by denominational affiliation. Yeah. Exciting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How tall prisoners were. And, yeah. I I estimate that over 50% of uh, Toronto's population at this time was evangelical in a broad sense and would would follow David Bevington's quadrilateral definition of evangelicalism. Uh, four points. Uh, one, evangelicalism was conversionist, emphasizing a change of the heart. Two, there was a mystical emphasis uh, I would say, on the person of Christ and on the cross. Uh, number three, scripture was authoritative, and all of this together um, resulted in an, in an activism uh, that can be seen in missionary movements or uh, voluntary societies, etc., that we'll be looking at shortly here. Uh, and the roots all go back to the religious, to the evangelical revival in Britain, but I would go back uh, much further uh, to uh, Puritanism, Reformation, and the earlier church that I were, that we were talking about before. There, I would not want to uh, uh, cut off Protestantism from a movement within Western Christianity in general, and uh, you can't uh, excise uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, for example. So there's three points I'd like to make quickly in the time remaining. Uh, Number one, British evangelical Protestant discourse, uh, messages, whatever you describe, language, uh, even ways of thinking. Uh, How did a person at the time think? Uh, Number two, the British evangelical Protestant organization Um, and the take-up Number th- number three, the take of, of British evangelical Protestant ideas into the into the heads of the citizens of Toronto at the time. So number one, discourse, uh, Protestant messages uh, emanated from multiple sources, whether coming from the pulpit, the Sunday school, uh, hundreds of thousands of new- pages of newsprint, uh, messages given to children around the around the table. Uh, or going out the door on the way to school. These messages, discourse, if you will, were disproportionately aimed at uh, male behavior. Uh, Women were a visible majority in churches, and even if the older males in a household did not attend, women carried Protestant prescriptions back into their homes and on into the culture at large. Uh, teaching on temperance became closely entwined with ideas on Christian manliness, quote-unquote. Uh, male sexuality was increasingly constrained uh, over over a long period of time, of course, but uh, in Toronto, births and in Canada in general, uh, births outside of marriage were extremely low. Uh, and I would see that as a measure of the uh, containment of uh, Male sexuality to the um, uh, to the marital union. On an urban frontier, women often with large families could simply not have sons and husbands off spending the money in the tavern, and uh, so the 
Christianity isn't simply moralism, but it carried with it uh, this moral dimension. The ordering of male behavior paradoxically led to greater freedom for both men and women. Women and working-class men got the vote in the latter part, at least municipally uh, in the latter part of the century, when neither could vote earlier. Uh, Working-class men without property couldn't vote. Uh, as of course women couldn't vote unless they were widows or with or or single with property um, so new places were opened up for human activity once male violence was contained and we can talk about this uh, further in general these messages uh, this protestant discourse served to humanize the city such that the treatment of children prisoners and even animals uh, became perceptibly more humane. Uh, the Humane Society was an evangelical organization in its beginnings uh, in Toronto and uh, elsewhere. Uh, and uh, this is, I'll just briefly show this graph, and you can see uh, homicides uh, decreasing with time. Uh, and this, uh, some historians have called this, the, in, in England being you know at the bottom of the trough there, uh, and some of historians have referred this to the English miracle, uh, but uh, you know maybe not all. <laughs> uh, so number two, uh, the British Evangelical Protestant Organization in Toronto. I've I've, I've called it the machine in the past, but uh, I'll call it an organization for our our terms today here. Uh, the British social historian Hugh MacLeod has argued that the strength of a of a discourse, of a religious discourse, can be measured by church attendance. And we all know that church attendance doesn't sum up what it means to be a Christian, but but surely it's at a measure of something, uh, at least on the uh, community level. Uh, there were three newspaper censuses that I'll refer to uh, later that were done in the 80s and 90s that showed over 40% of Toronto's population in church on a given Sunday, um, which was basically the highest anywhere. Um, there, there were maybe two or three communities in Britain that were smaller that had similar rates of attendance. Uh, the first table here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The important part is uh, to look at, perhaps, is uh, the rates of change over uh, the 20 years that I've listed there, and you see all expressions uh, increasing uh, significantly, although if you look at the Methodists and uh, Presbyterians and Baptists in particular, they and other um, uh, smaller group, uh, they increase significantly. Uh, buildings, uh, church buildings were cropping up uh, in the central core of Toronto, there were 90 uh, churches uh, by 1890 or so. And uh, the Methodists, for example, had 19 buildings with a seating capacity of 1,000 or more, with several uh, at 2,000 or greater. Uh, the growth of all expressions of the Christian faith was remarkable. And I can, uh, I've got some, uh, I'll just go through some. Oh, some of these uh, buildings here, uh, it really got blurred, uh, and uh, about a third of them will 
of these 90 churches in the core still stand today. This one was uh, turned into a box factory long ago, but uh, obviously uh, Methodist Church, I think. Uh, this is, I used to know the names of these in that terrible uh, transfer. Uh, this is Grace Church, which was an Anglican church started by two Anglican evangelical laymen, Sam Blake and uh, William Howland. Uh, it was built for the poor uh, in the ward area, uh, which was the poorest part of Toronto, uh, approximately where Eaton Center is today, but it's uh, long ago torn down. I forget exactly. This is the uh, Cathedral of Methodism in Toronto, uh, Metropolitan uh, Methodist Church, uh, still there today, uh, and it held, at this time anyway, 2,500. Uh, and just to the east was Cook's Presbyterian, which also was held a similar uh, uh, number, which is gone today. This, oh, sorry. <laughs> this may be Cook's uh, church here. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know that, whether that would hold 2,500, though. Um, another one. Uh, anyway, you get the idea. Uh, even if they're uh, somewhat blurred. Uh, uh, my, so uh, you can see changes in seating capacity there with uh, the Baptists in particular growing from 1882. And I got these figures from the church censuses that the newspapers had. Uh, Methodist seats grew from, or Baptist seats grew from 3,300 in 1882 to 9900 in 1896, so it's a it's a time of tremendous growth across the denominations. In uh, the third uh, table there, labeled C2, uh, are the raw attendance figures in the newspaper censuses. Uh, uh, these were conducted by the Globe and and the Telegram. Uh, one by the Globe and two by the Telegram, I, I believe. Uh, and we could talk about it later. You'll see uh, a couple interesting, uh, an anomaly there in the 1888 uh, attendance. And you can think about why that might be, that particularly Anglicans and Presbyterians and Catholics didn't show up on that date. Uh, maybe you'll have some ideas. Uh, uh, you'll see, th These are raw numbers, so... You, you basically have to make an adjustment for Baptists and Methodists who might show up twice at uh, at church on a Sunday. So, uh, if you if you subtract a third, that may give you more like forty five percent of the total population being in church on a on a given Sunday. And these these Sundays were in the winter, uh, so it's not prime uh, time. Uh, and, you know, at a time when there wasn't medicine at any given moment, a lot of people would be, would be very ill. Um, and you had disease. Uh, in, 19, in 1885, 5,000 died of smallpox in Montreal. Uh, Toronto was spared, but uh, uh, primarily, primarily through inoculations. Uh, uh, but uh, you can see, uh, I, I don't know how big... Montreal was at the time, you know, maybe 200,000, but to have 5,000 people die in one winter uh, uh, is, is goes beyond our uh, experience. Uh, Sunday school, I, I haven't listed, but uh, 
1880, approximately approximately 19,000 children were enrolled in Sunday school, and uh, in the elementary school, uh, there were 12,000 uh, children uh, uh, with an average attendance of 8,500 uh, in elementary school. The difference being, of course, that uh, one of the big differences was that uh, the Sunday school spanned a much greater age age range. Uh, so, And uh, Methodists... Uh, had a disproportionate number in the Sunday schools, 7,800. Anglicans had 6,900, but they had a larger uh, population uh, to draw from. So there you see the strength of Methodism, Methodism and uh, the Baptist faith in particular uh, relative to um, Anglicans anyway, for which there were, of course, uh, uh, more nominal members. Uh, if you were going to be a Methodist, uh, you had to you had to join. Whereas uh, with uh, Anglicans and Catholics, it was uh, it was a, a more of a state uh, religion. Although uh, there was no establishment at this point. Um, the Sunday school, 56% were girls and 44% boys. Uh, evangelicalism in general was a highly gendered religious expression. Uh, we don't have hard data, but in New Brunswick, for example, uh, this may have been numbers of evangelicals, 66 of members, church members, were women. Uh, uh, you know, you, maybe... Men were regular attenders, often who who didn't belong. But um, um, that was the case in Toronto too, where you had uh, disproportionate numbers of women in churches. Uh, uh, very few single men, uh, you know, past the age of sixteen, eighteen, would would attend church. They would tend to come back after they married, uh, whereas there would be many single women in church. Um, we can talk about that later if you wish. Um, and that's fairly uh, fairly standard even today. Um, political power is another component of this religious organization. Uh, here we have uh, Edward Blake, who was the uh, leader of the Federal Liberal Party, uh, he was from a prominent evangelical family in uh, Toronto. Uh, he had served for pre premier for, uh, of Ontario for two years. Uh, and then when Alexander uh, Mackenzie, who was uh, prime minister from 1873 to 1878, a teetotaling Baptist from Sarnia, uh, Blake went over to be one of his ministers. And when Blake uh, jumped... Jumped to federal politics, uh, he handed off the uh, premiership to uh, Oliver Mowat, uh, a very, a very strong uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, politician. Uh, and I've circulated an article uh, along with the with the handouts. Uh, he was, I, I think, he's the great great uncle of Farley uh, Mowat, uh, an atheist. Um, he was premier consecutively from uh, of Ontario from 1872 to 1896, 
and was simultaneously the president of the Canadian Evangelical Alliance. Uh, these prominent evangelicals were also part of the vast evangelical reforming movement that comprised scores of voluntary societies. Uh, as we mentioned, these societies went back to the early days of evangelical abolitionist movement and provided a safety net for, uh, for the culture at large uh, at, a, at a time when there wasn't a huge federal budget. Uh, in Ontario, the federal budget in about 1893 was $4.2 million, uh, whereas the church budgets were a quarter of that, and that's not counting the the vast number of, uh, of charities. So I, I, I think the budget's approach of the, of the churches and their associated charities approached that of the uh, Ontario uh, government. Um, uh, the city had a, had, a, had a higher budget than the, uh, than the province. Um, so as we, as we mentioned, these societies went back, these voluntary societies went back to the early days of the evangelical abolitionist movement and provided a so social safety net. In London, uh, I don't have real good data on uh, Toronto, but in London, uh, England, the annual budgets of the various charities, which were usually associated with, uh, with uh, the churches, um, were larger than the budgets of a number of European countries. So the charitable uh, organizations in London had, but had revenues that were half that of the Dutch government at the time. And, and, the, and the Dutch government maybe perhaps wasn't the powerhouse that it had been, but it was still a major uh, country. The growth of the evangelical denominations in the 80s and 90s resulted in increased political power in an organic way. It wasn't a, a culture wars kind of conspiracy to elect uh, your evangelical uh, as opposed to all others. Uh, it was just a function of, of the of the numbers of evangelicals who, outside of Toronto, were even in places were even greater. Uh, they were generally liberal uh, evangelicals in terms of political persuasion, but not always. Uh, William Howland, uh, we'll see his picture in here. I I scrambled them somehow. Uh, a two-term mayor, uh, evangelical Anglican. Uh, came to power as a result in the mid, this is in 1885, he's elected to mayor, uh, came to power as a result of, of the uh, votes of the labor movement, temperance movement, and the members of the middle class. So he had very broad power base. Uh, he was very popular. Howland was born in 1844, possessed a bubbling enthusiasm, was unassuming, kind-hearted, and approachable. He ministered to the poor, and he was said to be found constantly a day and night in the ward, which was the uh, the poor quarter uh, there in Toronto, around where the Eaton's uh, Centre is there today. But he died young, uh, relatively young, at age 49. And uh, for the his funeral pr procession, uh, people lined the streets by the thousands, including uh, hundreds of poor people. He served uh, as president or on the boards of, of all of these associations, which will give you an idea of the scope of uh, 
this uh, evangelical network, uh, evangelical for the most part, uh, not all, but uh, uh, the Evangelical Alliance, Newsboys Home, Prisoners Aid, Boys Home, House of Industry, uh, the Mission Union, Wycliffe College, Home for Sick Kids, Coffee House Association, Upper Canada Bible Society, Magdalene Asylum, West uh, and Temperance Association, the Infants Home, Prison Gate Ministry, uh, Home for the Aged, Toronto General Hospital, Hillcrest Convalescent Hospital, Mimico School for Boys, Home for uh, Incurables, Dominion Alliance, Willard Track Depository, Children's Aid Society, the Humane Society, and Shaftesbury Hall. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he died almost penniless because he gave away so much. Uh, he uh, came from a business family, but he probably, de he probably devoted, didn't devote enough time to his business. Uh, and I will come back. Here is... Um, Ah, shoot, sorry. A plaque for another evangelical uh, Anglican layman, uh, Daniel Wilson, who was the first um, president of the University of Toronto, but uh, and is remembered for that today on this marker uh, at University uh, College at U of T, uh, but uh, I'm sure he would want to be remembered as, as being a Christian. Uh, but you don't read about that anymore today, of course. Um, so the take-up and uh, Kazimir Zosky, uh, another uh, important Anglican evangelical layman, great-great-grandfather uh, of uh, uh, Peter Zosky. Uh, this is uh, Sam Blake, uh, brother of... Uh, Edward Blake, a, a prominent evangelical um, Anglican involved in the founding of uh, Wycliffe College. And just back here, this is Robert Rake's uh, a statue in um, Queen's Park. Uh, it's, a, it's a cast from the original, uh, which was a cast for the, or, or uh, sculpted, I guess you would say, for the... Uh, Centennial of the Sunday School Movement. Uh, Robert Rakes was a uh, involved in globalizing the S Sunday School Movement, and uh, in 1930, two of these uh, were were cast, uh, two replicas, and one came to Toronto. Anybody know where the the other went? Uh, Rakes was from Gloucester, so I, I, I'm assuming that Jim. Uh, uh, remember, we might remember this uh, statue in Gloucester, but, uh, uh, where Rakes uh, did his uh, work uh, with Sunday schools. Uh, uh, I'll skip over. Anyway, I'll I'll briefly touch on uh, the take up of British evangelical Protestant ideas. Uh, and I saw this as reflected in changes in homicide from the period 1880 to 1889 when males are, I would argue, were increasingly being shaped by uh, British evangelical Protestant moral ideas. Uh, uh, they are already very low, uh, 1880 to 1889, 30 homicides, 
1890 to 1899, 23 homicides, a very low rate uh, even for today. Um, and you can say, well, this is an anomaly, but you can look ahead to the murder convictions uh, in Toronto for the coming decades. There are obviously more homicides than murder convictions, but uh, it is, a, uh, I, I believe, a measure of, uh, of violence in a culture. Um, brief breakdown, 53 homicides for two decades, males, as always, um, uh, across culture and across time, uh, males were perpetrators in 85% of cases, um, and it usually runs about 90% across culture and across time. Well, a woman was the victim in 28% of cases. Uh, wives, there were only f four wives killed by husband, four too many, of course but a, a very low number. Uh, from 1921 to 1990, women were victims in 36% of homicide cases. So this period uh, that we've been looking at has a lower uh, percentage of women as, as victims, um, which could point to uh, tighter constraints on male violence um, in general and against women in particular. Uh, Furthermore, there was only one case of murder-suicide in these 20 years, which is an extremely low rate. Uh, eight involved hand, of these 53 homicides, eight involved handguns and four knives. I've passed out the uh, Eaton's catalog, and you'll see the easy availability of handguns. And I'm in quite in favor of gun controls, but uh, in late Victorian Toronto, you had to be 16 years old to go in and buy a... Uh, a um, revolver from a gun shop or, uh, uh, you know, Eaton's. Uh, uh, and it wasn't against the law to possess a handgun if you were less than 16, but you couldn't buy one. Uh, so that I'm only uh, pointing out that uh, there was a very low uh, incidence of homicide despite the uh, ready availability of handguns. How important is alcohol regulation in all of this? Uh, alcohol was increasingly being regulated, and this was a byproduct of evangelical activism. Uh, it can be argued that this was the mechanism whereby male behavior was changed. Uh, in the 1894 Ontario plebiscite, 85% of eligible women voted for prohibition, which is a, a phenomenal statistic. Uh, uh, maybe a, a mistake for the long run, but for the short run. Uh, one statistic from the earlier period in the 19th century was that there was one tavern per 127 Toronto residents, and this changed to one tavern per 4,091 in 1911, which is a, a social, uh, uh, massive social shift. How important was monogamy? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 4% of births were outside of marriage. So sexual rivalries uh, among males was diminished, uh, and a, I would argue a product of uh, Christian influence, uh, which tends to uh, put the damper on uh, male violence. So I would like to point out that Toronto was a peaceful place across the religious spectrum, Catholic and Anglicans weren't violent people. 
uh, in Toronto, uh, and certainly uh, evangelicals were not. Uh, this peaceful trend continued. In 1907, there were seven murder convictions in all of Canada, uh, a country approaching six million uh, at the time. Today, homicides in Canada remain low, uh, but are higher than in the late 19th century in the first half of the 20th. Uh, trauma medicine today is a, is a factor. Uh, perhaps 50% of victims in Murdoch's period would survive today. Uh, we, we are a more heavily policed culture with far greater surveillance than back then. So in summary, Christianity brought about a significant accumulation of social capital. And this made a difference for ordinary people who the Christian faith declares are not ordinary. Um, Murdoch Mysteries, uh, I, I did a count on, in Wikipedia on the, on homicide victims, and uh, I couldn't get them all because they're not all mentioned, but... Uh, uh, I counted 138 in a short period of time, uh, and it's pure fiction, of course, so it's not a... But 30% uh, of them were women, so uh, Elizabeth Jennings, whoever is the writer, uh, you know, did have at least, if not in numbers, uh, in percentages, uh, she was in the ballpark. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll close there. We can talk about Murdoch briefly or... Uh, whatever you want to, whatever questions you want to ask, and I'll try to uh, say something. <laughs>